Some of you might want to ask me what's in this in container. I'm glad you asked. That has nothing to do with my sermon, but I've just always wanted to do that up on this stage. Just kidding. Back in January, as many of you know, my mom went home to be with Jesus, and I was up there. Uh, we were at the, the, the funeral and memorial service, and some of our leadership team made the drive up to where I grew up, my little hometown of Monroeville, Alabama. It's in the southern part of Alabama. I grew up calling it L.A for Lower Alabama. So I'm from L.A. is what I often will tell people. And after the visitation, I was in the car with some of our team from here, and they wanted a tour of Monroeville. I said, we can do that. It only takes about seven minutes to go around the entire city. So we're driving along, and we passed a feed store. Now, unless you grew up in L.A., you don't know what a feed store is, maybe, but it's just what it sounds like. It's where they sell feed for livestock and all, and uh, that's where I cut my teeth on a minimum wage as a teenager and got to know some men that had been there for a long, long time, and I, I still remember a number of the stories that they would tell, you know, chewing on straw. And one of them said, you know, my first job was in an ice house. And they would tell me stories. There's one story that I've also heard other renditions of. Anybody here know what an ice house is? So you might have read about them, at least in the history books. It's before there was, refrigeration was a big deal, and they would have these blocks of ice that they would store in a tightly enclosed space, a dark space. Sometimes it would be a, a, a big room or a, a large warehouse built in the side of a hill. But blocks of ice were there, and one of the ways that they insulated those blocks of ice was through what? Sawdust. That's what this is. And this guy told me this story uh, about a fellow that was working in an ice house, and he had a pocket watch. And that pocket watch had belonged to his grandfather. It meant a lot to him. And somewhere in the course of the morning, as he was getting those tongs and loading things up, he reached down to check the time. And his pocket watch was gone. It was on one of those chains that had come loose. And it was somewhere in the ice house. And he was freaking out. He started just frantically going through and saying, everybody else pitched in to try to help. And the, 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 the more concerned he got, the more frantic he became. And they didn't find it. And finally, after an hour of searching, they just gave up. And... Uh, it was time for lunch break anyway, and so they went out to lunch. About midway through the lunch hour, this little kid came out to the ice house with the pocket watch. And he said, Mr., I found your pocket watch. He said, buddy, how did you, there were, there were four of us looking for it. How did you find it? We said it was kind of helpful when all of you left, because when you left, I shut the door, and everything got quiet, and then I laid down in the sawdust, and then I started listening, and I heard the tick. 
and it led me right to it. Here you go. You know, you know what it's like to lose something. Every human being does. In fact, we're born feeling like we've lost something. And to bring the parallel, you and I basically live our lives in the sawdust of a fallen world. Sawdust is just the leftovers of a buzzsaw going through what used to be a whole piece of wood, and that's what sin has done, that's what rebellion has done. And we do our lives tasting the sawdust of things like confusion and guilt, weakness, aloneness, and actually the older we get, the more frantic we become because all those things, this sawdust keeps us. We know there's something else. We know every human being has used the phrase at one point or another, things, this is not how things ought to be. We've got something embedded in us about what should be. But it's the stuff like the guilt and the confusion and the weakness and the aloneness that keeps us from finding it. So instead of finding what we're looking for, we instead opt to just kill the pain of the sawdust. So we do it through addictions and pleasure binges. We do it through popularity contests. We do it through power plays. But all the while, no matter how frantically we build up the bank account and the resume and all the pleasure fixes and the vacations and the boats and the properties and the possessions, it doesn't matter how frantic we get, we still don't find what we're looking for. And it's a powerful moment in the life of a human being when we stop our frantic frenzy and panic. and just laid down in the sawdust of our lives, all those consequences of living in a sinful world, and listen. Now, here's the deal. What do you listen for? That little boy was listening for the tick, tick, tick of this, this pocket watch that had been lost. But what do you and I listen for? Hmm. If you listen real carefully, you can hear the voice of another human being that dealt with the same kind of guilt and confusion and weakness and aloneness that you deal with. And he can, he can speak an answer. It's a voice echoing words from 2,000 years ago. It's a guy named John. Oh, we religiousize him. That's not a word, but I just made it up. John was just a normal guy like you and me. He dealt with the same kind of sawdust of a fallen world that you and I deal with. His dad was a fisherman. He and his brother, though, wanted to figure out what it means to be fully human. They had nickname, a nickname, the Sons of Thunder, and they engaged with life in large fashion, probably had tempers to go along with it. But this guy named Jesus, this rabbi, came along and said, follow me. And so they did, and they spent three years with him, and John observed him. 
not just doing religious things. He observed them in all of life. And quickly, it was not just because of his ideology, it was not just because of his morality, it was because of his vibrancy as a human being. And he, he was drawn to it. And he was saying, that's what I've been looking for. As he watched Jesus eat and sleep and walk and run and play and rest and work and do miracles and do teaching. And after those three years, Jesus shocked them all by, instead of becoming the political leader they thought he was going to do, all of a sudden he submits himself to dying on a cross. And they think it's all over. And three days later, he rises again. And then it starts making sense. In 40 days, for 40 days, Jesus taught them about, all right, here are the implications of this. He ascends to the Father, sends his spirit to abide within them. And these guys, 12 of them, and then dozens more were dispersed into all of Asia Minor and the world. All of John's buddies were martyred. They were killed. except for John. He lived to be an old man, and he wrote a book called Revelation from an island in Patmos where he was exiled. And he wrote first and second and third John, and he also wrote the Gospel of John. And so in the midst of the sawdust of a fallen world, you and I are starting to unpack John's Gospel. And here's why we're doing it. We're calling this series Awaken. Because ironically, what it takes to awaken as a human being is not more frenzy, but being still and listening. And listening to words that roll over the centuries with credibility and power and clarity. Not to, words that, not to make us more religious, but to make us more fully human to the glory of God. And the reason we're going through this gospel is because of a vision we believe God's entrusted to us. It's rooted in the heartbeat of the gospel, and it's engaging people to be fully alive in Jesus. And John, at the end of his gospel, he said, let me tell you why I've written this in John 20, 31. You guys know this well. You've heard it before. If you've been here, you'll be hearing it more. He says, these things I've written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. It's not just part A, believing that Jesus is the Messiah. That, that's, it's coming to Christ. It's, it's receiving him as Lord and Savior, yes. But then it's on Mondays as well as Sundays experiencing life in his name. And it's that life in his name that we're looking for. We're not just looking for assurance of heaven. We're looking for what does it look like for us to be a human being to his glory? That life in his name is not self-improvement. It's not positive mental attitude. It's not self-actualization. It's settling in to what was lost in the fall. And so if we'll be quiet, we'll hear John bear witness. And as we're laying there, we hear him say, let me tell you what you're looking for, and let me tell you how to find it. First John chapter 1, verse 1, he lays it out. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked at, and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. Notice he's talking about something real and visceral. He had observed Jesus walk on this planet and 
Though he couldn't put his finger on it, it wasn't the religiosity at all. It wasn't even ultimately his morality or his ideology. It was that vibrancy. This was the most fully alive human being to walk on the face of this planet since Adam and Eve before the fall. And he says, we saw it. The life appeared and we've seen it. And we, I want you to read that next word starts with a T. We testify to it. Big word. Big not by way of vocabulary, but big by way of importance. What I need to hear when I finally get desperate enough, because the more desperate you get, the more still you'll, you'll become. The desperation provides a, 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 a juncture, you know, a decision. If I become more desperate, I begin to either become more frantic or I can finally say I give up. I want you to want to listen. And when I listen, I'm listening to somebody, another human being testifying, bearing witness of what he found. Nathan talked about it last week, this whole notion of testifying. You guys remember Pastor Nathan talking about testifying? You got to say yes, he's going to feel bad. He's listening right now. He says, and we testify to this. And we proclaim to you the eternal life. That's not just heaven. That's life in his name. Eternal life is present tense, not just future tense, as we've talked about, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. First John chapter 5, verse 11 and 12. And he says, and this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life, and, who, and whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. What you are looking for is life. And if you, if you get Jesus, you get life. If you don't get Jesus, you don't, you don't have life. Life is not just whether my heart is beating and my lungs are breathing, but life is whether I've been restored to the original trajectory I was made for as a human being. He says, I want to testify to you right now. But it's not just John the Apostle, it's John the Baptist. So this is what you read, we've read in the last couple of weeks. First, it, it, go, now go to John's Gospel, John 1, verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Now, this is different from the Apostle John. This is John the Baptist. And he came as a witness to testify concerning that life, John 1.19. Now, this was John's testimony. All these words, the, group, the, the root Greek word is martyrios, where martyr comes from. The other disciples were martyred for their faith, but John was a martyr as well. He just never paid the ultimate price. To be a martyr is to testify about what we're all ultimately looking for. So, if you got your Bible, let's pick it up with the text that we're, we've arrived at today. And we're going through John's gospel. It's going to take a while. We'll take breaks. But I want you to keep reading. Keep processing. If you don't own a Bible, go back to the Welcome Center afterwards and they'll give you one as a gift. If you do, you just don't have it with you, turn your direction, your attention to the screen. John 1 verse 29, the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And this is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. And then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. So John is testifying that Jesus is the one. He is the one that all of us 
are looking for in the sawdust of, of the sin of our journeys. And he says, I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. On ver verse 35, the next day John was there again with two of his disciples, and when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. So let's spend some time in verse 29. Let's go back to verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I want to camp out on that. So whatever you're dealing with, maybe it's guilt over something, maybe it's confusion about a decision or direction to go, maybe it's simply uh, you thought you were, you were capable of doing everything, all of a sudden you've run into a wall and you realize, I, I need strength that I don't have. Or maybe there's an aloneness and it's not correlated to how many friends you've got, but there's something there. And finally, in the desperation, you've had that right powerful moment of humility that says, I'm going to stop being frantic and I'm just going to be still. And you're listening to a voice from 2,000 years ago testify, this is what you're looking for. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now that's an odd phrase if you're new to this church thing. The Lamb of God. What's that all about? But it's a theme that's throughout Scripture. Now, John said at the end of his gospel why he was writing his gospel. We read it a moment ago. These things have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Hoping you've memorized that by now. So I've encouraged you to read through John's gospel. Some of you have started and some of you need to catch up. So get it in gear. But start reading through just a paragraph. We'll be in it long enough that you'll have plenty of time to get through it. If you run across something that you don't understand, always a good thing to do is then jump to this at the end of the book and say, okay, well now, his ultimate reason was to write so that you would believe that Jesus is the Messiah and that you would and that you would and that you would have life in his name. So. This whole strange phrase of, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, do you think it has anything to do with experiencing life in His name? It's not a rhetorical question. I'm in a comfortable position, and I can stay here a long time. Do <laughs> you think the two have anything to do with one another? This whole notion of Lamb of God and figuring out what life in His name. When I'm here in the sawdust of my journey, and I'm, I'm really thirsty and I'm really hungry. Whatever human being for, is hungry for is the life in his name, whether we acknowledge it or not. And John says, well, then to get to life in his main name, you got to embrace him as the lamb. So this whole notion of his life and the lamb connecting, it wasn't just John, the other disciples. Paul talked about Jesus being the Passover lamb. Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1, he says, hey, I want you guys to know this, for you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed. To be redeemed is to be rescued. Redeemed from the empty way of life, handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He said, you want to know how to get out of the empty way of life? It has to do with the lamb. 
John says, you want to know what life in his name is about? It has to do with the lamb. So I think it probably is appropriate for us to talk a little bit about the lamb. What do you think? So what we're going to do, if you're new to uh, church, this might be a good day to come because we're going to cover the Bible from Genesis to Revelation in about seven or eight minutes. You ready? But before I start that, let's set it up. God created us for His glory. This life in His name is not self-actualization, it's to, to thrive and, and, and flourish to His glory. God says, this is the path I want you to take, follow it. If you don't take it, if you rebel against me and say, you know better, then you shall surely die. They didn't believe Him, they rebelled, they died. Lungs were still breathing, heart was still beating, but they died. So we're all born dead in our trespasses and sins. So at that moment, God elected, instead of destroying creation, He elected to redeem it. But there's this big problem, and it's our rebellion. Our rebellion is not just a small little thing, it's against Him. Now, a lot of people think, all right, well, supposedly God loves us. If He loves us, then why can't He just say, let's pretend you didn't rebel? If God were to do that, He would cease to be God because He would cease to be just. And I want to let that settle in. It's very important. If a judge had a person clearly guilty before them and said, you know what, though? I knew your your mom and dad. I knew you didn't mean to. Let's just pretend you didn't do it. Now, the mom and dad and the family would love that. How about the people that this kid had committed a crime against? They would say that's a, a miscarriage of justice. Or maybe it's a traffic violation. This person is committed and you can't, the judge, if the judge said, you know what, let's just, let's pretend you didn't do it, that wouldn't work. But if the judge came around and stepped down from his judge's bench and paid that penalty, then justice would be carried out as well as love exhibited. And that's some of what's going on in Scripture. God could not overlook our sin, but because He loved us, He's elected to take care of that sin, and it's centered in Jesus, the Lamb of God. But for redemptive history, we don't understand the timetable why God took as long as He did and what what the timetable is from here on out, but it's real clear in Scripture. You see this thread weaving through Scripture of the Lamb going from Genesis to Revelation. So here we go, that's seven minutes through the Bible. In Genesis chapter 4, you see a guy named Abel, and there's something about him taking an animal in killing it. And there was a symbolic thing of conveying his sins on this animal and killing it so that animal is dying for his sin. Now, is there anything of value in that animal itself? No. All of the Old Testament is pointing ultimately to Jesus, preparing the way. But that that was the first instance. So, it was just with one guy. Then, a little bit later in Genesis chapter 22 is a father and a son, Abraham and Isaac. And Isaac, they're at the top of this mountain. It's a fascinating, powerful story. And Isaac said to his father, the fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. That's the judge coming from behind the judge's bench and saying, I'm going to provide what you need. But your sin does need to be paid for. See, because the bottom line is you and I have offended, committed an offense against an infinite God. The reason all this points to Jesus 
Is my offense against an infinite God qualifies as an infinite offense, and if an offense requires a commiserate payment, therefore an infinite offense will require an infinite payment, and for a human being to pay for something infinitely, it's going to take all eternity, and that's what I am destined for is an eternity of the sawdust of my sin, unless God's intervened. And that's what all of these are previews of. And so you see that father and son saying, God's saying, I'm going to provide a lamb. Again, just a preview of Jesus. You move from a father and a son to a family in Passover in Exodus 12, where they were told to slay a lamb and put the blood up over the, 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 the doorposts. And anybody who did that was covered, was protected. Again, he's just whetting our appetites for the arrival of Jesus, illustrating that. It moves from a family to a people. The, the nation of Israel in Leviticus 22 was taught, you need to regularly confer your sins onto an animal. Now that animal is specified very clearly in Leviticus 22:20. 20, do not bring anything with a defect because it will not be accepted on your behalf. So what was being conveyed there is that animal must die, and that animal can't be dying for its own imperfections, it's got to be dying for yours. Again, symbolically advertising, previewing, that's why Peter said, Jesus is this lamb without defect. But then you move from an individual to a father and a son to a family to a nation to many nations. In Isaiah chapter 52 verse 15, we're told that the lamb is going to sprinkle many nations. His blood will cover. In Isaiah 53, the very next chapter, in verse 5, it says, but this lamb, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we're healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, so there's many nations, and all of this has been bubbling up, and now all of a sudden John the Baptist proclaims to people that are wallowing in the sawdust of their sin, look, what you need right now is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, because you know what? Your guilt is a result of your sin because sin condemns us. Your confusion is because of sin. Sin disorients us. Your weakness, sin immobilizes us, paralyzes us. Your aloneness, it's a result of sin because sin isolates us. And so this audience has gone from an individual, from a father and a son, to a family, to a nation, to many nations. And now you see John the Baptist saying, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, leading up to that vision that God gave to John the Apostle on Patmos about one day still to come when every human being will gather in concentric circles around the throne of Jesus. And the throne of Jesus is the throne of the Lamb. In Revelation chapter 5, then I saw, John says, I, I was given this vision, I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. And the lamb had seven horns. Horns is power, seven is perfection. So, so perfect power is, uh, is, is, is omnipotence, 
The lamb is omnipotent and seven eyes. Eyes, knowledge, seven perfection, perfect sight, perfect knowledge, omniscience, which are the seven spirits. Spirits, where is he present? He's present everywhere perfectly, so he's omnipresent. So this lamb is not just a religious figure. He's the omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent son of God. And he's at the throne, and God sent out into all the earth. He went and he took the scroll. This lamb took the scroll, a representation, metaphor of what our need is. We are right now, we're needing a scroll to open up and help us find what we're looking for. And John's in this vision saying, there's no way, I can't open the scroll. No can open the scroll. And all of a sudden, what John sees in this vision, same thing that John the Baptist had said, behold, what you need is the Lamb of God. And he looks and he says, he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Everyone will be there. Every ruler, every pauper, every rich person, poor person, anybody who's ever lived will gather around this throne and they will all be saying, worthy, worthy, worthy is the lamb that was slain. Now, and that is before the great separation. There will be people that have not trusted in the lamb at that point, and it will be a, a moment of, of deep, deep sadness. But for those of us who have, it will be a moment of deep, deep celebration. And it all has to do with you and me doing what John tells us is looking to the lamb. Not for a religious experience or new religious status, but in the midst of our guilt. And you know what guilt feels like. Where does it come from? It comes from a standard deep within our souls. People love to try to make a case that it comes from, from society, religious oppression. <laughs> Every civilization has had moral standards. There's something there. That guilt comes because we're guilty. The confusion comes. Because we don't know what will ultimately fulfill us. The weakness comes because we sooner or later run into a problem we can't solve. Right now you know what it is. Maybe it's at work, maybe it's in your marriage. And we become more and more isolated no matter how many friends we have. And what John says is, hey, stop being frantic and trying to kill the pain, deaden the pain. Distract yourself from the pain. The popularity won't do it. The power surge, the power fixes, possessions, bank accounts, none of that's going to do it. Be still and listen for the ticking. And you hear a voice from 2,000 years ago saying, what you need is the Lamb of God. Over 30 times in the book of Revelation, John mentions the Lamb. passages like Revelation 7 verse 10, and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Salvation, restoration of what we're intended for as human being, comes at the hands of the Lamb. 
Revelation 22.1, last book of the Bible, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. The water of life, the life of God, that life with a capital L, not just heart breathing, lung breathing, but the water of life is what flows from the Lamb. And throughout Revelation, gave you a tour of Genesis to Revelation, now we'll camp for about five minutes on Revelation itself. Let's look at four life gifts from the Lamb that apply directly to that guilt, that confusion, that apply to that weakness, that apply to that aloneness. The Lamb comes with life gifts. And with sawdust in our ears, between our toes and in our hair, He says, let me give you some gifts. Here's the first one. The lamb comes with the gift of forgiveness for our guilt. Forgiveness doesn't come by me evening the scales. I cannot. I've I've rebelled against an infinite God. I can't make that up with any good works. I'm at His mercy. Revelation 7, 14 says, and he said, these are they who come out of the great tribulation and they've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. How did that happen? How did our, our, our sin get cleansed and forgiven? It's because we said, God, I realize it's going to take me all eternity to pay for this and that's what I deserve, but you in grace have given me another option and that is to trust in the payment that Jesus has made because he didn't die for himself, he was perfect and he it was an infinite God-man, so he made an infinite Payment and he says, It can cover all of you if you'll accept me. I receive him as my Lord and Savior. God says, Done. You're forgiven. You say, That sounds too good to be true, and it's why it's called the gospel. Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? We've talked about it before. That means there is therefore now no condemnation. I was at a um, performance Friday night. Arlene and I went up to Jacksonville, a dear friend of ours. Both of them, a couple, they're, they're professional opera singers, some of the best in the business. They live in both primarily in Europe, but some here. And uh, he was making his debut with the Jacksonville Symphony, singing the lead tenor part for Verde's Requiem. Now, Verde wrote it as an atheist, but he talked about the Lamb of God. And I was overwhelmed throughout this thing that even though he's talking about the Lamb of God, there's this heaviness, there's this guilt, there's this, oh, I hope it'll happen. John saying, what you need is the Lamb. And it's not a kind of a maybe he'll forgive you. He will forgive you. You're forgiven. You're cleansed. That's a life gift from the Lamb. But it's not just forgiveness. He also provides leadership. For whatever steps you're needing, He designed us. So, second leadership, the second life gift from the Lamb is, is, is His leadership. Revelation chapter 7, verse 17, for the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd, and He will lead them to the springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. I want you to put up on that screen again, put up that outline. I want you to look at that. The leadership that you and I are longing for comes from the one who leads us to springs of living water, that life water. That's what we're thirsty for. Life gift number three that you see in Revelation, it's not just forgiveness and leadership, but it's strength to follow the path that He's leading us on. 
And that strength, that strength comes in the midst of the weakness. The lamb's not this little weak thing over to the corner in a religious max, mascot. This is the king of all creation. This is the word who became flesh, Revelation 17, 14. They will wage war against the lamb, but the lamb will triumph over them because he is Lord of lords and king of kings. And with him will be called his chosen and faithful followers. Revelation 12, 11, they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. I'm sure when John was putting quill to parchment, he was also thinking of what he wrote in, in, when he wrote in John's gospel. John chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus says, these things I've spoken to you in the midst of your frantic thing, that you may have peace. In this world, you will have sawdust. That's a Greek word behind that word trouble. Just kidding. But in this world, you will have trouble. The gospel is not an exempt thing. The gospel, though, enables us to take heart because he's overcome. He's the Lamb of God and the Lion of Judah. And he gives me what I need to get through each day. Though I'm caked in sawdust, he says, let's get you home. And there's that fourth life gift, and it's his love. Love for my aloneness. For God so loved you and you and you that that's why he did all of this. He wants relationship with us. And they even describe it, John even describes it in Revelation chapter 19, verse 7, let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. You and I are called his bride. He loves you, he loves you and you. And we're going to populate the new heaven and the new earth in this intimacy that's unfettered by any sawdust. But until then, it's a matter of realizing the essence of eternal life, John 17, 3, is knowing Him and understanding that He's come for you. And most of the time, we back away from the intimacy with Him because of all the sawdust behind our ears and up our nose and in our hair, and we think there's no way with all my sin that he's going to want to keep me. You know, one who's want to accept me and love me, a, a, a friend who has encouraged me and thousands of others over the years is a woman named Johnny Erickson Todd. I've had the privilege of partnering with her on several things. In fact, I've got a painting of hers in my office. The unique thing about the painting is she did it with her teeth because when she was 17 years old, Johnny drove, dove into the Chesapeake Bay, it was too shallow, fractured her neck, became a quadriplegic, and over the years has instead succumbing to just collapsing in the sawdust. She ended up coming to Christ in the midst of the sawdust of her, of her pain. She now paints with her teeth, her teeth. She's written tons of books. She's now, I think, the oldest quadruple, surviving quadriplegic in, in the country. She got married several years ago to a guy named Ken, who is a phenomenal man. And she writes about maybe what you're feeling right now, because all you know is you're wallowing in the sawdust. You think, there's no way that Jesus could love me right now. I want you to hear what she writes about her wedding day. I felt awkward as my girlfriend strained to shift my paralyzed body into a cumbersome wedding gown. 
No amount of corseting and binding my body gave me a perfect shape. The dress just didn't fit well. And then as I was wheeling into the church, I glanced down and noticed that I'd accidentally run over the hem of my dress, leaving a greasy tire mark. My paralyzed hands couldn't hold the bouquet of daisies that lay off center on my lap. And my chair, though decorated for the wedding, was still a big clunky gray machine with belts and gears and ball bearings. I certainly didn't feel like the picture-perfect bride in a bridal magazine. I inched my wheelchair closer to the last pew to catch a glimpse of Ken in front. And there he was, standing tall and stately in his formal attire. And I saw him looking for me, craning his neck to look up the aisle, and my face flushed. And I suddenly couldn't wait to be with him. I had seen my beloved. The love in Ken's face had washed away all my feelings of unworthiness, and I was his pure and perfect bride. And then she says this, how easy it is for us to think that we're utterly unlovely. I'll add, especially when we're caked in sawdust. She continues, especially to someone as lovely as Christ. But he loves us with the bright eyes of a bridegroom's love and cannot wait for the day when you were united with him forever. So here's the deal. There's no amount of sawdust that will keep Jesus from pursuing you. No amount of guilt or confusion or weakness or aloneness is too much for him. 